Thank you, Brian. Good morning. Hey, next Sunday is First Fruit Sunday, and I want to remind you we sent you a letter about our special uh, Thanksgiving offering, a clinic uh, to help people in need in the name of Jesus Christ uh, with uh, prayer, healing, and medicine. And so if you can contribute to that, please bring your offerings next, uh, next Sunday. Well, this morning we finish our series in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to be in the last chapter, chapter 16. Now let's look at it together. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may, pr may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it, if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Ma Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers." Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has an opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaius, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. 
If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus. be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. Well, the church is not a building. If you Google the word, the words beautiful church, you get links to buildings, hundreds of links to buildings. And if you click on those links, you get pictures of buildings and cathedrals, beautiful buildings, I mean, breathtaking beauty. Buildings called beautiful. To the world, the church is a building. And a beautiful church is a beautiful building. But the church is not a building. And a beautiful church is not a beautiful building. It's the beautiful people of God with the heart of Jesus Christ. That's the church beautiful. What makes a beautiful church? Well, surely you've heard it said, I grew up hearing this, you know, beauty is only skin deep, and that's true but you got to grow up to really believe that. But what I heard a lot was beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And from a very young age, I wanted to grow up and be an artist. And I worked toward that. And in high school, I took art classes. I was a part of the art club. <laughs> And when I entered college, I continued my vocational aspirations of becoming an artist. And I took a lot of art appreciation classes, art history, art appreciation. Well, when we say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, what we're paying uh, attention to is the idea that art, or beauty more importantly, is a matter of personal taste or opinion. And if true, then there goes all my art appreciation classes. When it comes to art appreciation, what are God's standards of beauty? Just a couple of thoughts. We, we don't have time to delve into it deeply. But one that comes to mind is God never uses outward physical appearances to determine beauty. He looks on the heart. And I would imagine most of us immediately think of 1 Samuel 16, 7, when God was, he sent the prophet Samuel to the household of Jesse and he was looking for the man after his own heart that would succeed Saul. And as he looked at the sons of Jesse and he went down the line, it wasn't appearance, it wasn't appearance, it wasn't appearance. It was the heart. Inner beauty. 
A second thing that comes to mind is that God never uses birth or pedigree as a criterion of beauty. For example, with the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, and his resurrection, the apostles eventually were scattered with his commission unto the ends of the earth to proclaim his arrival, the good news of salvation. But practically, and as we know from Acts 10, Peter would, would never, without a revelation, without an angelic visit, would never have entered the house of a Gentile. It took an angel to get Peter, the Jew, and Cornelius, the Gentile, together. And for Peter to confess, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. So we know that even just from a survey that God never determines beauty by appearance, social rank, power, or fortune, as does society in designating the beautiful people. With God, it's different. As Paul wrote, you are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ, with the Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, in Messiah Jesus. Jesus is the standard of beauty. God determined in advance that his people were to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote, verse 29. To see an explicit picture of beauty, just review Jesus' prayer in John 17 sometime. Jesus' prayer, Jesus' own vision for the fulfillment of that which is, was hatched in the secret counsel of God's own heart before the foundation of the world, that we should all be like Jesus Christ. And God knows art. He knows beauty. He knows art appreciation. He's the creator. Talk about art Talk about architecture. He's the preeminent artist, the preeminent critic of beauty. But God is about greater enterprises in the creation not of art, but of hearts. Hearts fashioned after his son, Jesus Christ. The architecture 
of a beautiful church is not a building, but it's Christ-like heart. I admit, Paul isn't giving us here in chapter 16 10 steps to building a beautiful church. And by church, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about a community of believers just harmonious in Jesus Christ, bleeding the love and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes or hurt one another or step on each other's feelings. As Michael beautifully prayed, we're in a process. But part of that beauty is saying, forgive me. That, that's not the real me or the better me in Christ. I do that. That's a part of being a leader, a mature Christian, repenting and saying, I was wrong. You're right. We both know the better things, the better way. Paul is, in my opinion here in chapter 16, giving us a glimpse of a beautiful church, beautiful believers. Generosity, hospitality, spending leisure together, mutual respect, loving one another in all things, heartily serving one another, appreciation, showing appreciation and gratitude, saying thank you, Warm and affectionate greetings. Thinking of others outside our church family. Thinking kingdom, not just of ourselves. Praying for one another. Praying for the Lord to come to be all in our all. You know, for all the I mean, when I think of Corinthians, I mean, when I think of church problems, I think of Corinthians. I think of 1 Corinthians. I think of the things that we have thought about along with Paul, with his perspective, the questions, the challenges, the issues, and his explanations and insights all the time as it were going back to the reality of Jesus Christ, his cross and resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the reality of new life in Jesus Christ. That's what I think about. But just as that is true, so also are the courtesies of faith, hope, and love that are rooted in Jesus Christ, practiced by faith, they build a community. They build a beautiful church. They display the body of Jesus Christ to those who do not read their Bibles, to those who are misled by second and third and twentieth hand and bitter expressions of who Jesus Christ is and what this faith is all about and what the church is really to be. A beautiful church is not a building, and it's not built with hammers. It's built with hearts, hearts given to Jesus Christ, 
hearts pumping with Jesus Christ, hearts that flow with faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. Hearts enlivened by faith, hope, and love. And so I want to look at some of these uh, beautiful features that Paul touches on here as he closes out his letter. And the first we see in verses 1 through 4, give generously. He's talking about the collection. He calls it a logia, which is an extra piece of giving over and above regular giving. Do you know Paul, in his letter, speaks of this collection? He speaks of it in First and Second Corinthians. He speaks of it. It's spoken of in Acts, but it's also spoken of in Romans and elsewhere. And Paul uses eight different words for the collection. Logia is just one of them, but all of them just breathe the grace and the blessing and the goodness and the generosity that is ours in Jesus Christ. And it's out of that, out of that abundance that we give over and above and beyond to those in need. And that's the collection. Paul has a dual purpose in this collection. The first is to meet a need. He wants to help those of the church in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians who are suffering from a famine, from a drought, from very hard times. He wants to meet practically a need that it should be a tangible expression of love. But that brings us to the second thing that he wants to do. I said it was a dual purpose. The second thing that he wants to do is he wants to show, show the Jewish Christians that Gentile Christians are of the same spiritual family in Jesus Christ, that they love the Jewish Christians. And some of you know, we don't have time to go into it, but some of you know from reading your New Testaments that Jewish Christians had a hard time accepting and embracing Gentile Christians. Paul's not, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. But he doesn't have his arms crossed waiting for those Jewish Christians to get their act together. He's calling upon the churches to love those Christians in Jesus Christ, the church beautiful. and express the reality that we read about, that he stands for in this letter against all the dissension and partisan infighting. He stands for that, and he stands for it boldly and beautifully. Not exhausted, not embittered, an open door, even though there's opposition. And so he compels us to be givers. That's the heart of God. I was a rebel when I came to Jesus Christ. It took some adjusting. 
I was ready to bow to Jesus. But all those words about commands and the will and obeying, I, it, just, it was a little bit hard reading all that and all those words and all that stuff. It just seemed a little in my face until I realized that those are just Bible words, Bible, Bible words of the time, good words, but words that express the virtues and values of the heart of God, what he stands for, what he cares about, what he loves, what he wants us to do. And it helped me to quit stumbling over the word command or obey and to realize there's something beautiful and real about what God is all about. And these represent his will and his ways. Practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. He talks about this in verses 5 and 6 and verse 11. And you'll find it in your notes, in your bulletin. He says things like, uh, I'm going to visit. I want to stay with you. You can help me. And then in verse 11, he talks about helping Timothy on his way. Hospitality is caring for the needs of a person who is not a part of your family. The very word hos translated hospitality, and uh, this word occurs in the writing, writer of Hebrews, of Peter, 1 Peter, in Paul's letter to the Romans. The very word hospitality means love the stranger or alien. Now, it didn't mean that you had to be a stranger or an alien, but it was somebody outside your family, and to treat them as a guest, and more importantly, to treat them as your own family. Treat them with honor and respect. It's characteristic of the spiritual leader in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8. Paul in Romans 12:13 says, "Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality." You should read chapter 12 of Romans verses 10 through 21. You'll get another picture of the beautiful church. Peter in 1 Peter 4:9 says, "Show hospitality to one another without grumbling." How human we Christians are. I mean, it, it does kind of put its finger on us, doesn't it? Show hospitality without grumbling. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 2, wants to motivate us in, in a more inspiring way. He doesn't say, show hospitality without grumbling. He says... Show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I love that. It reminds me of divine appointments. Each and every day we have divine appointments. Because God is not far away from us. He moves with us. He's within us. There are no accidents. 
We can live expectantly, expecting great things from God. There are two prepositions that come into play here. The preposition for and the preposition to. The preposition for and the preposition to. If these things happen to me, then I'm likely to grumble. And I'm going to miss the angels in my day. But if things happen for me, it changes everything. This last week, I was reminded of A.W. Tozer when he said, when I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. In other words, it's for me and not to me. It's how we look at it. In Leviticus 19.34, we read the foreigner, the alien, the stranger who resides with you must be to you like a native citizen among you. So you must love him as yourself because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. That's true of each and every one of us within the grace of God. Not one of us can claim to have bypassed the grace of God through the death of Jesus Christ for all of our flaws and wrongdoing and sin. Be hospitable. Turn that grace, that gratitude into generosity and an outgoing outlook that realizes that in each and every day, God wants you to be an agent of his hospitality. Spend time together. Verses 7, 8, and 9, Paul says, I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. Spending time together is the work of love. It's the work of the hospitable heart. If hospitality means anything, it means making space in our life for the strangers of the world. And if to make space in our life for strangers, then how much more those within the body and the household of God? President Lincoln put it best, I think, the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. The grace of God ought to give us that outlook, that there are no enemies. In fact, Jesus said, love your enemies, because there are no enemies. I know that's hard, but that's where the mind of Christ, or better, the very heart of Christ, is constantly pumping in our life and changing the way we see things. And instead of just reacting to the world, we're acting in the light of his leadership and his spirit and his influence, his heart. I, I long for this day when a, each and every one of us 
is thinking about being a disciple to someone else or to disciple someone else. To realize you, right where you're at, I know, I know. You think, well, if I was up there talking to me like you are, John, then I would, I, I would think that way. But it starts with realizing God wants to do great things through you. To disciple someone else. Someone already within your sphere of influence. May not even be a Christian. Why don't you just say sometime, would you like to get together on a regular basis and spend time in, in God's word? Or just if, he, if maybe that's a little too much for that person, if they really don't know the Lord at all, just say, hey, would you like to study the Bible with me? We could have coffee or get together for breakfast. Or maybe just somebody that is a fellow traveler in Jesus Christ, and you say, let's do this together and start growing together, spending time together, looking at the world, looking at the difficulties of life, looking at our relationships, looking at work or school or whatever it is that we're facing, and talking through those things together and growing in Jesus Christ and influencing one another for Jesus Christ. Everyone in this church could be discipling, even this week. And there are so many helps out there, books designed. If you want one, tell me. I'll give you one. Free. Want a free book? With two-day shipping, we can get this done. I'm serious. What, what, think what would be happening to the church if we were all doing that, reaching outside our comfort zone. We're not too busy for this. Verses 10 and 10, 11 and 12, respect one another. Timothy, Paul says, please put him at ease. Timothy was young. I don't think he was bold, but he was no coward. You couldn't hang with Paul and be a coward. That's for sure. But I don't think he had a forceful or assertive personality. Not yet. Not yet. And Paul basically says, show him some respect. He's in this with me. He loves Jesus Christ. He's going to be teaching you. Don't get all high and mighty and critical. Hear his heart. Hear what he's teaching. Don't sit there as a critic. Show him respect. Recognize what he's doing for the Lord. That kind of stuff, by the way, is tearing churches apart. heartbreaking. And the world says, look at them. They're no different than me. No grace, no love. No guts. Treat people 
with an eye to what God is doing in their lives, not their past. The cross took care of that. Not their shortcomings. Get in and contribute in their life and what God's trying to do. Be a help. Don't stand back like some bad art critic. And the youth, the youth of the, of the church, treat them with respect. Grow them up. I'm on a youth jag. If I can't be young again, I want to make them mature in Christ. I want to see them involved in this church, in our leadership, more and more and more, more than you realize. I'd even love to, to lower the age of becoming a member. Because when the Lord gets a hold of them, youth, age has nothing to do with it. We ought to be inspiring them and expecting it of them. Do everything in love. Verses 13, 14, and 24. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. <laughs> Sorry. I love that. Act like a man. We translate that, be courageous. <laughs> and let all that you do be done in love. There, the first four commands correspond to what an army commander might say to someone on guard. And in an ascending order, keep awake. You know, be vigilant. Don't be asleep on your watch. Stand firm. Don't give ground. Hold formation. No battle can be won if you break rank. Be brave and be strong. And the fifth command, do it all in love. Do it all in love. There it is. That, I, I should have said, bam! You mean to tell me, John, that becoming Christ-like, growing into a beautiful church doesn't just happen while I'm asleep? Or I'm dozing on my watch? Or I'm breaking rank and running from the church or from the Lord or from his people or for the hardships of life? Yeah, I'm telling you that. Paul's telling you that. The Bible's telling you that. The Lord's telling you that. When did you ever get the idea that this happened while you were sleeping? When did we ever get that idea? Where did we get that idea? Because things don't just go our way because the Christian life is not floating downstream? You ought to memorize those two verses. No, the Christian life, growing a beautiful church, it doesn't just happen, it comes by faith. Vigilant, courageous, strong faith, and always with the character and purpose of God's love. 
Having faith doesn't make things easy. It makes them possible. Serve one another. Serve one another. Verses 15 and 16. He, Paul says they've devoted themselves to serving the Lord's people. And what Paul is saying is defer to people like that. Do you want to know who to follow in Christ? Follow people like that. Do you know who to listen to? Quit listening to the naysayers and the can't-doers. Listen to the people who are doing it. Listen to the people, defer to the people, trust the people, admire the people. Let those people inspire you, not the people that are leaving. Let the people who are invested in Jesus Christ and really living for him. Those are the people you ought to be listening to because those are the people who are walking in the power and the strength and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and they're living out the grace of him. The King James Version translates this, they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Those are the people that you should listen to. And that's what Paul's saying here. Don't be asking, what am I getting out of the church? Ask how God would have you serve in and through the church. In this week's devotional, Oswald Chambers, in My Utmost for His Highest, Shelley got me to reading this, so I read it every morning. It's good. It is good. I don't care what some web page says. He said, I don't throw my life away, but I willingly and deliberately lay it down for Jesus and his interest in other people. Bam! Say thank you, verses 17 and 18. Such people deserve recognition. That means just what it says. Recognize them. I, we don't have to throw a party. In fact, it'd probably be more important if, have you thanked an usher lately? Have you thanked someone that makes coffee? Have you thanked one of the babies attenders, the one who care for the little, little ones and change their diapers? Have you thanked somebody in the cafe? Have you thanked a, a, someone who teaches Sunday in and Sunday out at all different levels? Have you thanked people who empty the trash and do all those small things that you don't really need to pay attention to? And we don't crow about it, but they're there in season and out faithfully. Thank them. Say, I really appreciate you. I'll bet you're like me. There are times when you don't see someone and you think, man, if I just, I don't really know them that well, but I see them Sunday to Sunday, during the week, in the things we're doing, I'm just, I'm grateful they're here. Thank you. We create a Christ-like church culture by complimenting people to their face. 
and then bragging about them when their backs are turned, not beating them up. Greet warmly, verses 19 and 20, heartily, warmly, enthusiastically. You know what the word is? In Greek, it's just a whole lot. Greet them a whole lot or much, like much, much. And so they translate that, you know, a greeting. So they, well, much must be warmly or enthusiastically. Or, and then it says, give them a holy kiss. You know, the kiss in the Roman Greco culture, uh, it, it, it showed honor, respect in general. But for the Christians, the kiss meant you count. You matter just as much as me. I'm showing you honor. And it doesn't matter what your gender, what your race, what your position, what your title. It became a hallmark of early Christianity. Now, we don't have to get all slobbery. Get the point. We treat each other as one in Jesus Christ. Sometimes Tim, with that prickly goatee, tries to kiss me on the cheek. Ugh. And because I react like that, he just, he, he does it all the more. <laughs> Remember the wider community. In verse 1, 3, 5, 8, 15, and 19, Paul talks about other churches and bodies of believers and the work of God elsewhere. That's kingdom thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm running late, so I'm going to abbreviate. And then he closes in verses 22 and 23 with prayer. These closing remarks are interesting. He says, let anyone who has no love for the Lord be regarded as anathema. And then he says, and he uses the Aramaic words, although written in Greek. Maranatha, Lord come. Now that's interesting. He wouldn't write Aramaic in Greek letters unless they knew what he was talking about. And the what I want us to see here is then he, and then he says, may the grace of God be with you, and I want you to know I love you. I, want, I love you in Jesus Christ. That's his closing prayer. He wrote it in his own hand without an amanuensis or a scribe. And what he's saying is, is hold fast to the covenant. Don't let anyone who doesn't love Jesus Christ poison your love for Jesus Christ. Love the Lord your God. That's what's behind what he's saying here. The covenant. The covenant love of a believer in Jesus Christ for God. Maranatha. Lord, come. We live in the light of his expectant return. May the grace of God attend you, be with you, be operative in you, be exuding and glowing from you. And never forget, I love you in Jesus Christ. Will you stand? I'm going to close in prayer. You know what to do. 
If you need to pray, come and pray with us. We'll be here. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It's so rich because you live and we love you. And it's in your matchless name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. That's the last word of 1 Corinthians. God bless you. Thank you.